Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today is Dr. Liana Ruert, who is a specialist general surgeon with a passion for cutting edge breast care and surgery, including breast conserving cancer surgery. Part of her practice's value proposition is to offer not just surgery, but access to a complete package of breast and personal health. In recognition of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, the show continues to raise awareness of breast cancer and also living with breast cancer. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a huge privilege. Dr. Root, thank you for joining us. We are eager to understand more of your expertise in this field and to, to hear some of your best practice. In opening today's conversation, can you tell us briefly about the points in your journey that led you to focus on breast care? So it's, um, it is something that actually grabbed my attention already as a medical student standing around a breast cancer patient's bed and realizing that I'm the only female standing around that patient's bed and looking around me and wondering whether anybody else around the bed really understood what this woman is going through. And I just immediately felt so much empathy and and really drawn to the patient, um, having a conversation with her and that interaction stayed with me. So when I specialized and then subsequently specialized, it is, it is that, that, that kept drawing me in is the woman to woman interaction. Um, the fact that you are more than a surgeon because surgery can be incredibly mechanical. Whereas here you have the opportunity to really build a relationship with a patient and you often walk a journey with them. So, so all of that, you know, kept me coming back, coming back to, to breast health and then specifically to breast cancer care. Um, yes, if that makes sense. So the relationship dynamic was part of the attraction. And I would imagine also it is a journey, as you say, and you're walking through this process, handholding someone as they go from one step to the next. Yes, absolutely. Um, and you learn that it's such a privilege to actually witness people going through this. Um, it is, you see them at their most vulnerable, but you also see them at their absolute bravest and courageous. Um, and my patients are phenomenal women. They are all incredible. And I feel, I feel privileged to be part of it. Um, to and hopefully to not only chase after cure, but in the journey actually facilitate real healing, which you know can be with or without cure. There's actually a difference. And that is something that I that I learned with time and with difficulty, but there is real truth in that. How do you manage the emotional dynamic? Because I mean, earlier you spoke about with surgery, it's mechanical, it's quite transaction-based, in-out, and yes. relatively little engagement with the patient. But the approach you're taking is really connected. There's a lot of empathy. How do you manage your emotions? And yes, you are attached to someone, but still remaining objective. Yeah, so I think that's it's it's an ongoing learning process for me. I think what I've learned 
thankfully, fairly early on in my career, and, and it came because of a few meltdowns, is to really look after myself, is to practice what I preach, and to proactively build into my own practice and build into my own life the things that I encourage my patients to do, which is self-care, uh, deliberate, and often debriefing um, with with skilled help, and realizing that what I'm entering in with the patient is it is a professional relationship, but there is an a, an energetic exchange, and to be really mindful of it and to hold it as as a sacred interaction. So to come back to that again and again and again, and and hold myself accountable and ask people that I trust to hold me accountable. Um, a lot of people say that you know you shouldn't feel and you should distance yourself. But I've learned to recognize that actually as a danger sign for myself. As soon as I start feeling blunted or untouched by people's story, I know I'm nearing burnout or burnout edge. And I know I need to step back and I need to actually recalibrate. So for me, um, non-attachment or, yeah, I guess there's a difference. You can remain non-attached, but still really invested and empathetic um if you lose that sense of relationship I, I think it's a danger sign for me personally it's not it for everybody's practice but but for me tell us about a success story oh <laughs> there are so many um you know the i think this is the beautiful thing about breast cancer is that the horrible thing is that it is so common. I mean, the World Health Organization statistics now say one in every eight women will face a breast cancer diagnosis in their lifetime. And that is frightening. But at the same time, that also makes breast cancer the most researched cancer. And breast cancer research is actually setting the tone for a lot of research happening in other cancers. So what we've done and known 20 years ago is vastly different than what the tools that we have in our toolkit now. So breast cancer has changed to a cancer that can potentially actually have a phenomenal outcome and an excellent prognosis. So many women that, that actually go through our practice that walk out on the other side, on the other side of the mountain. And for me, the success the success story comes when she can look back at it and she can see herself transformed. Um, if she can recognize the healing that's happened, not just the fact that the, the cancer is gone. Those women that turn around, that tell me cancer may have been one of the greatest gifts that I've ever gotten, which is, sounds like a ridiculous and radical statement to make. But patients that take ownership of their, their health, that starts following their gut, that starts getting rid of bad emotions, cleaning house, really, um, empowering themselves um, for them. And it's still a heck of a journey. It's very difficult. But that can stand on the other side of that journey and say, this has been a transformation and for the better for me to become more whole instead of broken. For me, that is success. And, and that is that takes really proactive investment from on my part, but mostly on the patient's part. Wow, that's a really interesting perspective that it is 
life-changing in a positive way for some people. Yeah, and and like I say, it sounds absolutely bizarre, but I think if you can hold the space for a patient and can, you know, gently sort of see, yes, this is horrible, and yes, we don't like it, and yes, we want to get rid of it, and all of those things. I don't want to diminish the fighter spirit, the uh, you know, the, the war against cancer. But sometimes I find those metaphors quite discouraging because those that don't survive, what are they then non-survivors? Are they losers? Are they somehow where it's not, it's just life. So much more helpful is, yes, let's do everything we can but let's let's walk this journey with with intention and with awareness and let's see what we can learn. Um, easier said than done, but a far more rich journey than powering through <laughs> with boxing gloves <laughs> and coming out on the other side quite traumatized. <laughs> Staying for a moment with the dynamic of living with cancer, obviously it can be emotionally challenging because it is a journey, as you've said. Can you describe some of the common emotional responses that patients experience after a diagnosis? You know, it's such a it's such a vast spectrum of emotions that come flying at you. The patients that scare me the most is the ones that go completely quiet. <laughs> Because I'm always wondering, please let me in, show me what you're feeling. So there's those that go completely stoic, completely shut down. And you can just see, you know, absolute fear and terror. And then on the other hand, there's though there are those that immediately expresses anger, why me, lots of tears, lots of emotions. Um but all of that is just, it's variations of fear. And for the first time in your life, really concretely having to confront your mortality. So it's an existential crisis that, that a patient is facing. And one needs to be incredibly mindful of it and very, very gentle with the process. And each person has to really go through a process of grief. Um, uh, it's uh, it's different, but it's the same. It's it's all those same steps that we know of, you know, denial and anger, and eventually, eventually, hopefully, getting to acceptance. Part of the ethos of your practice is to provide patients with access to a complete package of breast and personal health, which I imagine, based on what you've just said now, incorporates empathy and holistic care. Can you unpack this for us? Or your, you know, your your approach and philosophy. Yeah, so I think for me, it is it's incredibly important to look at the person sitting in front of me as a whole person and not to make them feel that I'm only seeing their cancer because I think it's very easy to, as a clinician, so easy to just look at the cancer and forget about the person that actually has the cancer. So, you know, our first consultations are usually quite long, trying to unpack a complete history of the patient. And that includes um, childhood, trauma, um, stresses, particularly over the last five to 10 years before the cancer diagnosis, unpacking lifestyle habits, 
anything from diet to sleep to relationships and to try and build a more complete picture of who this person is and in what cellular environment for that, for lack of a better word, this cancer actually developed. So for me, it is then to look at the cancer's personality and very much the patient's personality and to see how best we can manage these two together. So, um, yeah, the medicine is one thing. And I always tell my patients, I can, I, I see myself a little bit like a firefighter, the cancer being the fire. I can put out the fire and I can do damage control and I can help us get control. But the real power lies with the patient then to rebuild the house and to reset that cellular environment. Um, so it's a 50-50 partnership and it's a 50-50 responsibility. So, yeah. Listening to what you're saying, it sounds as though it is almost an interdisciplinary process that there's also psychologists involved. How do patients and their healthcare teams work together to manage the, the challenges of, of treatment and survival? Yeah, so I think it is. Unfortunately, I find it very sad that, you know, for instance, patients are often limited by what their medical insurance would pay for. I find it utterly frustrating um, because I think it should be it, it shouldn't be separate it should be a complete package really um, so at our team myself and the oncologist work very very closely with a dedicated psychologist that has a lot of experience working with cancer patients particularly we also work with a body talk therapist to do uh, stress release and, and body talk um, therapies with the patient. Uh, we work with a nutritionist to help the patient, physiotherapists, somatic therapists. So all of that is, is on offer for the patient. And as much as we can, we try to incorporate it. Um, and I, I, I get quite sad when, when patients opt out of those, um, what what do you call it? Those those lanes of the treatment of the treatment process and say, no, just give me the chemo, just give me the surgery and the rest, because it feels it feels quite incomplete to me. And just from an observational, you know, point of view, the patients that that engages with the whole process definitely comes out on the other side, um, a little less traumatized and whole and much closer to that healing that I was referring to earlier on in our conversation. You've spoken about the emotive aspects and the mental aspects, which are incredibly important. And like you say, some people just overlook it and they go with the mm. the sticker and the treatment and, and to put it on there. But the reality is that often there are side effects um, from treatments can you tell us about some of the physical challenges as well as the side effects that breast cancer patients may face during and after treatment? Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, if we just start, you know, breast cancer treatment is always a basket. It's never just one thing that we do. Um, that has really changed the outcomes. If we look at, we need to locally manage the cancer, which is usually the job of surgery and radiation. And then we systemically have to manage the cancer for preventative purposes to prevent metastatic disease, which is ultimately what kills patients. And that's the job of 
chemotherapy and endocrine therapy, which is hormone blocking therapies for hormone sensitive cancers. And then now we're very excited about the advent of biological treatments and immune, immune therapies as well. But each one of these treatments obviously comes with a basket of potential side effects. So if we just start with surgery, um, for most patients, um, if they can get breast conserving therapy, so that's just a lumpectomy. Um, physically, I think it's, it's probably the least challenging for them, but they have to undergo radiation therapy then. And that has its own problems. If patients have to get a mastectomy and reconstruction, it is a, it's a, it's a massive operation. Um, requires usually a fairly long hospitalization, which is challenging for patients. And even though we can make a reconstruction look beautiful, there's a lot of patients that say that it takes quite a bit of getting used to. They feel like the breasts aren't quite their own. It's not really part of their body. So they're almost dissociated from from their breasts. Um, And I think it's really important to address that um, prepare them for that and then try and help with somatic therapy and physiotherapy to reintegrate. Um, if we look at chemotherapy, yes, unfortunately, the chemotherapy that's offered for breast cancer is chemotherapy with some of the most severe side effects. Um, but there's quite a bit that we can do with supportive therapies to help patients through it. And I always try and reassure patients and encourage them to seek these supportive measures. Um, anything from great anti- anti-nausea medication to appetite stimulants to, um, you know, immune support, uh, dietary adjustments. Um, we know that patients lose their hair. So for me, it's quite important to refer them before they even start chemotherapy to somebody that can maybe help them with microblading for their eyebrows. I know it sounds ridiculous, but, you know, as women, just looking at your face, having brows, it makes you look more healthy and actually more beautiful. So get that done before we start the chemotherapy. Go fit a few beautiful wigs or get a few beautiful head covers. Um, I always talk to them about continue your get safe skincare uh, continue your makeup, make yourself beautiful because people feel better then if you don't look sick. Um, and then the radiation therapy, of course, a little bit of tiredness, skin changes. And again, it's about just engaging with what we can do to support the patient in terms of skin care, wound care, energy support, immune support. So it's it's really holding a very fragile system as carefully as you can, walking that tightrope of really giving the patient the treatment that she needs without over-treating her and always evaluating the treatment benefit versus the quality of life and having that conversation with your patient. And I feel quite strongly about not bullying my patients into anything. Um, if they choose a treatment, it usually... And they say yes, like a wholehearted yes. They usually do better. It's those that uh, I don't really want to. I'm not sure. I feel uh, they. It, I don't know. It seems like it's it's they, it's harder for them to manage the side effects and potential complications. So many factors that go into this process, and when you were talking about the 
image element. And yes, for some people, they may think of this as being superficial. But I think when you look at yourself, that's that's who you are. That's your identity. And when you start seeing changes that you hadn't purposefully driven, you can't control it, which is why what you're saying is so important to have these elements done before you undergo treatment. No, for sure. It makes a it makes a massive treatment. And anybody, I think people are very quick to say, oh, it's just breasts. Oh, it's it doesn't define your your, your womanhood. It's like, you know, your life is more important than that. But as human beings, we are all complex and we are all layered. And it is just get quiet for a minute and just think if you lose your hair. I mean, for some people, losing their hair is far worse than the mastectomy because it's such a powerful identifier as who they are as women, how they present themselves to the world. Um, and I think we all, it's very easy to say, oh, it's superficial until you are in that situation. And that's where the awareness, the constant conversation, the turning inward comes, we say, oh, I didn't realize this was so important to me. I didn't realize so much of my identity was tied into this. So it's about accepting those changes and then also gently working towards a redefinition of how you see yourself and how you define yourself as a woman and finding that deep sacred place within that really is where <laughs> the seat of our femininity is. Such an important insight. We've chatted about the dynamics affecting an individual and the types of, of treatments uh, and the array of, of support systems that are available. I would also say that a, a family is impacted by the disease probably as much as, as the patient could you share what types of support and resources are available to help families yeah. in, in dealing with cancer? You know, it's so interesting. And this is a conversation that I very, very often have because our breast cancer patients, if I have to look at their personalities, but this is, I think this is probably all women. We are caretakers, right? We are supposed to take care of everybody else. And for the patients to actually realize, I literally sometimes have to take them by the shoulders and tell them if there was one time in your life where you need to actually put yourself first, now is the time. <laughs> and for that to sink in, to allow others to take care of them, for some patients is, is an impossible thing. So for the family, it, it always brings out a very, very interesting dynamic. In some families where the family is almost more paralyzed than the patient and the patient feels responsible not only for her own emotions but also for those around her and really helping her to separate. We need to deal with you now as a patient and with the family. You can't help her. I know it's hard, but you can't help her if you don't actually deal with whatever is going on with you now. And as she did, you need to go through a certain grieving, you need to go through a certain processing of fear, of questions. But this dynamic can only work if the patient can be the patient and the caretakers, the caretakers. Um, 
there it's so important to empower caretakers as well and to know and make them aware of the warning signs of caretaker burnout because that can happen um to know that they also have psychological support i always encourage them also to do the same as, as psychology sessions body talk sessions somatic sessions um and with the patient together look at lifestyle changes that can make the situation better stress management sleeping well making sure everybody is resting eating well moving their bodies doing all those things that we know we should do but then do it together um and to support and for the men the 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 partners the male partners sure to get them to talk because they i mean they go quiet and they go scared and then it can often be interpreted as as absence or as an inability to support but it's fear it's fear driven so to allow them or create the space for them to to open up to debrief um and kids having a, a conversation with with children quite interesting so i often suggest especially in certain certain family dynamics that it's that it's facilitated by a psychologist because there's a fine line not to scare children especially little children but never to lie to them because kids know when you're lying um the the instinct of a lot of mums is to try and protect their children and not tell them what's going on and in the long run that can do more harm than good so it's walking that fine line of of honesty and still protecting and and keeping safe and and giving children also a safe space throughout the process so much so much um, so much <laughs> and the thing is when we started have this, having this conversation i was really thinking about through the patient's eyes thinking about the the medical help and support services that are available to the patient but in truth we need those services available to the family as much yeah. as as well and i don't think that those types of costs are covered never never and it's it's so sad so it really it really takes practitioners that's willing to take extra time to actually spend time with the family as much as they are spending time with the patient as well and to deliberately ask family members to come in with the patient so that you can see what is going on what is the dynamic what is happening and then unfortunately also to recognize if a patient genuinely does not have support at home to try and see is there maybe a support crew group that can be joined is should a social worker maybe get involved because sadly those cases also exist where a patient truly is very isolated in her journey and you can only recognize that either if she is feel safe enough to tell you or if you observe and watch and look uh with interaction with family or friends or whoever is coming to the hospital visits with the patient. Thanks for sharing an overview of looking at treatment and its impact on a patient's journey as well as their family. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and today we're talking to Dr. Liana Root, who is a specialist general surgeon with a passion for breast care. 
We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. So you are an established doctor and have definitely got this empathetic view and strong sense of compassion to you. And now that I've spoken to you, now I understand some of the dynamics behind one of the projects which you formulated uh, several years ago, Project Flamingo, which is about addressing the long and distressing treatment waiting time faced by breast cancer patients in the public healthcare sector. Because let's face it, we have a a two-tiered health system in South Africa, uh, private care, which is funded by private individuals, and the public sector, which is state-funded and caters for probably just over 70% of the population. So please tell us about Project Domingo. Yes, so everything that we just spoke about, so it's so much easier to offer this to our patients in the private healthcare sector, and it just breaks my heart that it is not available to every single breast cancer patient in this country. Um, For me, timely, um, firstly, timely cancer management, but secondly, holistic cancer management is, is a human right. It's not... It's not something that 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 should be a privilege. Yeah, a privilege. It, it's a right. So if we look at unfortunately what's happening in our public healthcare sector that is so grossly resource constrained at the moment, patients are waiting an incredibly long time for their cancer surgeries. Um, and this was already the case about 13 years ago when we started Project Flamingo where I noticed that um, my patients in the state sector were waiting anything between 12 and 16 weeks from diagnosis to their first intervention, which is ridiculous. Um, Not just from a cancer point of view, but we've been speaking a lot about the human aspect behind it. So you can only imagine um, the ripple effect this this has on the patient, her community, everything. So what uh, we came up with is an idea that we so-called catch-up surgery lists where a bunch of volunteer surgeons and anesthetists donate time and skill for free. And the, the non-profit company Project Flamingo then covers the cost of the nursing fees and theater consumables. And we open theaters over a weekend and we do these breast cancer operations to try and get that waiting time down. Um, it's been hugely successful. Uh, started out as such a small project. I never, never imagined that it would take on the proportions that it has. Uh, quietly hoped that by now it would not be necessary because we would be all sorted out. But <laughs> alas, the need is ever growing. So yeah, about 1,400 operations later, and we are still going strong. And as it goes with these projects, the surgeries, obviously, that is the main focus. But the longer time you spend within the system, the more you recognize other needs. So we've grown various tentacles to try and support and help and assist and improve what the experience of our patients in the in the public health care sector. Not nearly enough, but but closer <laughs> to the ideal the two questions come to mind here one for people that you've assisted in this project as as patients how do they come into your system to be fast tracked is there an application yeah so it's quite a, a complex system because you need to be so careful patients as we've 
really discussed this whole talk is surgery is only one small part of the treatment. So it's incredibly important that, that a patient is in a system that can do the appropriate oncological interventions, that can do the appropriate follow-up. Um, so for me, what made the most sense looking at the at the system was to base Project Flamingo at the key hospitals where breast oncology treatments happen. So those are usually our big academic tertiary level hospitals um, in the Western and Eastern Cape. We then, within the system, there is booking slots for breast cancer. So let's say at Grutteskir, there is one list per week on a Tuesday that's dedicated to breast cancer surgeries. What we then do is on the booking system, we simply slot in four slots, six slots, eight slots for a Saturday. We In the clinics, we fill up the Tuesday slots and the next patient that needs an operation goes onto the Flamingo list. And we fill up those slots and the next patient goes onto the regular slot. So that makes the selection process incredibly fair. It is patients that is in the system, contained in the system that we know will be followed up and will go through the entire treatment process. Um, it makes the hospitals proactive partners in this process, which is really helpful. And it's it's proven to be a model that works extremely well. For patients that struggles to access that system, obviously through our email and helpline and whatever, we help facilitate easier access to those to those hospitals as well to get the patients on the right, you know, in the right place at the right time. Sounds like an incredible network that you've built up and a legacy. Well, yes, it's a, it's really it's a it's a network of note. And can I just say, if you ever doubt the generosity of people, this project—I mean, I stand in awe every day. Um, how generous people are, not just with yes, obviously with donations that that makes this possible but in being willing to give their time being willing to give their expertise being willing to step up to the plate um it's a massive it's a massive organization it's a massive commitment and yet there are so many healthcare professionals that against all odds are, are putting up their hands and say I'm willing to help I want to help that it's incredible if people do want to get involved how where what do they do <laughs> I mean, I, probably the easiest is to visit our website, www.projectflamingo.co.za. We've got a ton of information on there. We've got a how to get involved button. You can click and choose there whether you want to volunteer, whether you want to volunteer as a medical staff member, whether you want to donate, whether you want to pack pamper packs, whether you want to donate food parcels. There's a gazillion ways to get involved, and that's probably the easiest. So just reach out to us via the website on email. Perfect. So www.projectflamingo.co.za. Dr. Root, reflecting on your personal journey, and it's a question that I ask all my guests because everybody has a has a different recipe to what works for them. Could you share some of the factors that you feel have contributed to your success? Yeah, the, the one word that comes to mind immediately is grace. <laughs> 
Because sometimes when I when I look back, I was like, how did this happen? A lot was was done with, you know, a little bit of the arrogance and the ignorance of youth, having a personality of jumping in and then realizing, oh, my goodness, what have I done? And now I have to make this work. Um, But I am. I guess my. Yeah, it's 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 grace. It's a help from the right people at the right time that came into my life that I absolutely had no control over. And I was so lucky to have them. I think my natural curiosity and inability to accept injustice has played a huge role. Um, I I can't sit still and I, I can't watch something that I don't think is right or fair to continue. And even if I can't completely change it, I feel compelled to try something, even if it's just one millimeter in the right direction. Those are great traits. (laughs) As we wrap up today's conversation, could you share a few words of inspiration or motivation for girls and women who are listening to us? Sure. Um, you know, I think looking back also at my own journey with a, a lot of stumbling around along the way, a lot of insecurity, um, very often suffering of what we now know probably was imposter syndrome, um, is actually to very, very early on in your life and in your career to empower you with a support system that you trust. Somebody that can help you really get to know yourself, to get to know your own strengths, and to build a an emergency SOS kit for yourself. Um, know what what feeds your soul. Know what keeps you going. Know your why, as Simon Sinek says, um, and carry that with you, and not just and for all of us. And I have to remind myself. Every day of this, I'm very guilty, but talking to my patients as well, we all have a job to live a little bit more deliberately. Um, We tend to go to default. We tend to go into survivor mode, but to bring back that intentionality to our lives. If there's one thing that breast cancer has taught me is is that um, working intentionally with, with our habits but also working intentionally with our emotions, with our history and with our futures. What a powerful message. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. (laughs) You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and we have been talking to Dr. Liana Root, who is a specialist general surgeon with a passion for breast cancer.